Well, we are continuing our study in the book of Galatians, chapter 2. We're finishing out chapter 2 this, this afternoon. And um, if you weren't here with us two weeks ago, you didn't hear the sermon based on verses 17 and 18, we'd encourage you to go online, uh, download that message. It was a very uh, key sermon, a very... Um, very important sermon in the life of our church and in our understanding of the gospel and its implications for the Christian life. We, we, we encourage you to do that because it, that was just, it's such an important study. Um, we'll be studying verses 19 through 21 and finishing out chapter 2. We're going to start our reading from verse 15. And for the reading of God's word, if you would stand together. Galatians chapter 2, starting from verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if justification were through the law. Then Christ died for no purpose. Please be seated. So two weeks ago, we looked at Pastor John Piper's quote where he said, this issue of gospel and the law, or the law and gospel, imperatives, indicatives, the issue of the Mosaic law and how it pertains to Christian life is the most difficult, vexing issue in his pastoral ministry. I have that quote for you. Let's read it. I'll read it for you. For the last 40 years of my ministry, no biblical issue has proved more recurrent or more vexing than the nature of the Mosaic Law as it relates to the gospel and the new covenant. The pastoral implications for how you preach the gospel, aim at sanctification, comfort strugglers, give assurance, and admit people to membership in the church are huge. So here is Pastor Piper. He is a spiritual giant. He's an exegete, a first-rate student of the Bible. And he has said that for him and his life and ministry, this issue has been the most vexing and recurrent for him, most difficult challenge for him in his ministry. And I am just scratching the surface of it, and I find this statement to be true. It is complex. It is multifaceted. It's multi-layered. And I cannot, I am not able to answer the thousand and one questions that come with this study. So we're just starting our study in, in this issue of how the law relates to the gospel and to the Christian life. We studied last two weeks ago how Paul was confronted uh, with this question, this objection, this even accusation. This is the most repeated re response, often heard response after the gospel is preached, uh, which is, if by grace we are saved, 
And it is not by works of the law, but we are justified before God by faith alone. Then why bother with obedience? Right? Why bother? If it is not by works, but it is by faith alone that we are justified. Right? Dikaiosune, which is righteous, which is accepted by God, approved by God. If God accepts us to himself and to heaven by faith alone, then that undercuts our motivation to obey the Bible, obey the law. Right? Why? If God loves us anyway, someone asked, then why bother with obedience? Uh, there's some of you guys are teachers, right? I mean, you guys are teachers, and I think they teach you in teaching 101 to give grades to students at the end of the semester, right? at the end of the year, right? They teach you that, right? <laughs> you, don't, you don't give the grades at the beginning of the year, and definitely you don't give the grade of A plus at the beginning of the year and guarantee your students, no matter what you do, you're going to get an A plus. You would never do that as a teacher. Why? Because if you did that with students, especially collegians, right? No, especially, right, elementary, junior high, but collegians especially, what's going to happen? They're not going to show up to class. They're not going to study. They're going to goof around. They're not going to take your class serious. They're going to listen. They're going to fall asleep all the more. You still fall asleep, but you're going to fall asleep all the more. Why? Because you're going to get an A plus anyways. Well, that's what the gospel is saying. Gospel is a revelation of that end times declaration of righteous, forgiven, justified. God reveals to us what we're going to hear at the end of our lives. Ahead of time, right now, we got an A+. Every single one of us is a believer. We got an A+, and it's guaranteed. How is it guaranteed? He's given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, promising us that He's not a liar. He's not going to change His mind. He's not going to mess around with us and give us an F, right, on that day. He guarantees he's going to give us an A+, plus through the Holy Spirit. And so if that is the case, we know we're going to get an A+, plus. then why bother studying? Which, why bother listening to Pastor James on a Sunday afternoon on daylight savings time? Why bother going to care? Why bother Why bother giving to Japan? Why bother going to missions? Why bother sacrificing suffering, obedience, whatsoever? In fact, this message is scandalous. This message doesn't promote holiness. If anything, it disrupts, undermines, right? It hinders sanctification and true righteousness. Well, Paul answered this. Paul answered this two ways. He gave the first answer, and every time this question was raised, this objection was raised, Paul's immediate answer was that optative mood, right? Magneto, which is certainly not. God forbid. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. That's crazy. That makes no sense. You are wrong. Right? That's his immediate, like, visceral response to this kind of objection. He says that it's, you are being scandalous, right? Because you are imposing human logic to the Bible. You're imposing, you're becoming the arbiter of truth, and your reasoning is superseding the reasoning of the scriptures. No, let God be true, every man a liar. That is not a possibility, right? If, in fact, that you are in sin and you are promoting sin, you are growing in sin and you say it's the gospel's fault, it's because of grace, it's because of Jesus, 
No, let God be true. Every man a liar. Your experience deceives you. Your heart is lying to you. Your friends are lying to you. That is not the case. That is not true. It's not a possibility. And then he goes on to explain why that is an impossibility. And how does he do that? He reveals to us that the gospel, that this doctrine of justification by faith alone is not a static, lifeless, passive idea or truth. It is not a powerless truth. It is a power-filled truth. It is spirit-empowered. Just as the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Now, Jesus didn't raise himself. It's passive. Every time that is spoken, he's a passive participant of his resurrection. God, through the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. Likewise, God, through the gospel and through the Holy Spirit, raised us from the dead and gave us new life in Christ. Therefore, it is an impossibility for us to remain and continue in sin. If you go to court and you are charged with a crime and the court, the judge says, not guilty, innocent, you're free. That's a forensic external declaration, a legal declaration, but that, that, that does not and cannot change your heart. It has nothing to do with the inner man, your nature, right? Your soul, your, your, your inner man has nothing to do with your identity, with your position. The all, only thing the judge can do is say you're not guilty, but he can't take away your guilt. He can't remove your, he can't give you peace. He can't give you hope and joy and love. All he could do is declare it externally, but inwardly he has no power to do anything. That is not the case with the gospel of Jesus. When we believe in the gospel, not only is it a forensic legal declaration that we are justified, accepted, righteous before, before God who is holy, but at the same time through the Holy Spirit, there is a, a spiritual transformation that has taken place immediately. There is an internal dynamic, a radical reorientation of the inner man where once... Right, the oldest past of you has gone come. I mean, this is uh, this amazing change comes over everyone who is justified in Christ. Right? Every believer experiences this radical change at the moment of their salvation. And uh, this is uh, taught, taught to us from the first verse I've ever memorized in, in my Christian life. Right? 22 years ago. Right? So I said this in the first service, it didn't make sense to them. That some of you guys weren't born 22 years ago. And everybody said, no, we were here. Right? The older group for service. Right? Except for like the Clemens here and a few other Debulises. But a lot of you guys, not so much here and there, but a lot of you guys. I see a lot of older faces. A lot of you guys weren't even alive 22 years ago. Thanks some of you. Um, 22 years ago, first became a Christian. Uh, first verse I ever memorized was, 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, new creature. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. Anyone is in Christ, new creation. Now, obviously, Paul is talking about the inner man, not the outer man, right? Once you became a Christian, you didn't like change physically. You didn't get more beautiful. You didn't get taller. Right? He didn't lose weight. Right? He didn't like, you know, become more disciplined overnight. Nothing changed externally. Right? Maybe there was like a decline of anything externally. 
But what changed is the inner man, right? New creation, born again, new life, new nature, right? A radical change has occurred the, the, the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. This is why antinomianism, because of the gospel, is an impossibility. Right? This answers the objection that gospel produces lawlessness. The reason the doctrine of justification by faith alone does not promote sin is because this is what gets us into Jesus. We become united with Jesus Christ in the inner man, in that moment, spirit baptism. We've been baptized into Christ and we have been crucified. We have died with him and we have been raised with him. That's, what, that's how Paul explains that we are in Jesus and Jesus is in us. This incredible spiritual transaction took place when we believe this doctrine. So humanly speaking, that teaching will lead to licentiousness. But scripturally, biblically, gospelly, that truth does the exact opposite because it's not a static dead doctrine. It's a power-filled doctrine. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is at work in believers who believe in the gospel where spiritually they are dead with Jesus and they've been raised with Jesus and we are new creatures in Christ where we are in Jesus and Jesus is in us. Right? How incredible is that? Right? I mean, come on. Are you guys that asleep? Amen. Right? <laughs> Amen? I mean, after that, we should say amen. Like, yes, I agree. That's awesome. That's wonderful news. That's great news. Right? That was Paul's, one of his favorite ways to describe Christianity. Over 160 times in the New Testament, Paul's epistles, we find that phrase, in Christ, or in Him, or in the Beloved. He's saying again and again, Christians are what? You are in Christ. You are in Him. You are in the Beloved. He like bends the Greek language where he adds soon, right? That's with or in Christ in so many different ways to describe what happens spiritually when we placed our faith in Christ. And so uh, Christian students and Bible students, uh, Bible teachers, theologians study the Bible and they came up with this doctrine you know what Paul is getting at? You know what Paul is teaching? When we systematize all these verses and develop a biblical theology, a doctrine of Paul is trying to teach here, when we collect all the information and, 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 and synthesize it, we come up with this doctrine called union with Christ. Right? Every believer has been united with Jesus Christ. I have some quote here by... Uh, some uh, teachers of the scriptures, uh, Tabidi Anyabwili. I just killed his name, right? I hope he doesn't understand it, but this man named initials T.A., right, <laughs> said this. He said, if I had a favorite doctrine, a truth from scripture I love to meditate upon, it would be union with Christ. So many of us, maybe we never thought of this. Or maybe it's one of the first times. So you knew it, but you never even considered it. Here he says, this is his favorite doctrine. Our union with the Lord is sublime, a joyful, 
heart-affecting reality. I'm taken with it, though I dare not darken counsel with my unlearned words. John Calvin, a name easier to pronounce, said this, This is the wondrous exchange made by his boundless goodness. Having become with us the Son of Man, he has made us with himself sons of God. Having received our mortality, he has bestowed on us his immortality. Having undertaken our weakness, he has made us strong in his strength. Having submitted to our poverty, he has submitted to us his riches. Having taken upon himself the burden of unrighteousness with which we were oppressed, he has clothed us with his righteousness. Our union with Christ has the highest degree of importance if we are to understand justification correctly. John Murray said in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not merely a simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption. And he is right. I mean, I say amen, amen to John Murray. Anthony Hawking has said, once you have your eyes open to, to this concept of union with Christ, you'll find it almost everywhere in the New Testament. You'll find it everywhere. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. As in Adam, all die. So also in, in Christ, all shall be made alive. Galatians 3.28, our first and foremost identity is not male or female. It's not Jew, Gentile. It's not barbarian, Scythian. Our main identity is we are in Christ. We are Christians. We're little Christ. What does that mean? That's not a Hindu cultic idea. It means that Christ is in us and we are in him. This is based upon his election of us. Ephesians 1.4 He chose us in Christ, in him before the foundation of the world. And that was Paul's pursuit, uh, Philippians 3. He said, I consider all things rubbish so that I might be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, but that comes through faith in Christ. I have not yet taken hold of it. This truth is we possess it but we strive to possess it. We strive to have it possess us. We strive to have it permeate our every being, to grip our souls, to reorient our our, our identity, our understanding, our our paradigm, our worldview, our value system, our our, our relationships, our our, our thinking, our, our, our reasoning. That's what Paul is getting at. So the whole of his life, after 30 years of ministry, he said, I'm still pursuing this, guys. I have not yet taken hold of it. I am striving after this, this mystery of being in Christ. And the Gospels talk of this, John 6, 56, whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me and I in him. And that's the radical nature of Christ's relationship with us. He doesn't want just followers or believers He went to the masses that were following him, and he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part with me. And so 10 verses later, all these people left Jesus. They took it literally. They thought, what? This is like cannibalism. Eat him? Drink his blood? That's like crazy for Jews, especially Jews. And then Christ asked Peter, Peter, are you going to leave as well? And he said, where can I go? You have the words of, of life. Well, Christ here wasn't talking about literal um, body and blood. He was thinking spiritually, right? Spiritually, 
where we are in him and, and, and he is in us by faith. John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you. Right. So it's, 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 we abide in him and he, ab- he, he remains with us. 1 John 4, 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. I mean, I could just, there's so much here. I had, I usually preach 16 pages of notes. I had 39 last night. I had 39. And so we could spend weeks on union with Christ. It is such a truth, pregnant with, with riches. But that's the, that's the seminal form here in, in Galatians 2. That's, what, that's how Paul refutes antinomianism. This idea that the gospel undercuts holiness. It's impossible because the gospel is not a dead idea. It's a it's the power of God. And what it does to believers is it changes them. It makes them new creatures. They are born again. And so Paul, uh, that's what Paul is doing. He's refuting this, this idea of, of, of antinomianism. Now, to refute this charge, Paul does something that's very interesting. He uses himself as an example. In verse 15, you'll find the first person is a plural we. Verse 17 is a first person plural we. In verse 19, he starts off in the Greek. Actually, the first word in the Greek is I, right? Do the I die to the law, right? He uses himself as an illustration, as an example. All this is still Paul quoting himself to the Galatians, what he told Peter. Right? Peter, you know, because he, he was acting, he was committing racism, he was sin of racism, that's a surface sin. The deep sin was fear of man, intimidated by the Judaizers. The real sin was he was denying the gospel. With what he tore down with the gospel, he was building up again. He was a true transgressor. Right? He was a true a violator of God's word. And so Paul confronted Peter publicly for his sin. And he was declaring to him the gospel. And he, that quote is recorded for the Galatians that they might hear because they're in danger of doing the very same thing. So this is what this, Paul is quoting what he said to Peter. And what he said to Peter was, I. And he gives testimony. He puts himself out there. <clears throat> and he says, this is what happened to me. This is what I experienced. And this is what happens to every Christian who trusts in Jesus. Right. Yes, he's an apostle. Yes, he saw the risen Lord. Yes, he was called to the third heavens and given revelation. But Paul, you read his epistles, and he wasn't fixated on that at all. The false teachers made much of these spiritual experiences. They created, they, they, they stretched, they made up spiritual experiences. Paul wasn't focused on that. He was focused on the gospel. He said, for every Christian who believes in the gospel, this is the experience, and he's the model. He's the ar- prototype. He's the archetype. He's the example for every Christian. So every Christian will experience the very same thing. What do Christians experience? Christians, all Christians, they experience death. You and I, if you're a Christian, you've experienced death in the inner man. Verse 19 and verse 20 both talk about death. Verse 19, Paul said, through the law, I die to the law. 
And he's talking not just the ceremonial law, but the law of Moses, the whole, the Mosaic law. And that's affirmed by chapter 3, 10 through 14. Right. Paul was killed by the law. Notice here, the law is not what dies. Paul is the one who dies. This is remarkable. Paul is saying, I am dead to the law. That's an incredible thing for a Pharisee to say. For a Pharisee, the law was everything. Right? The law was to a Pharisee what you know, food is to me or Asian food is to me. Right? Laws to the Pharisee what Lakers are to me. If I were to say, you know, I am dead to the Lakers, right? I'm a Clippers fan. Be like, what? <laughs> That's scandalous. What? Let's pray for our pastor. How could this be? Me and John will root for the Clippers. They're okay with Blake, but uh, right? I mean, if, if I said, you know, I'm dead to one of my favorite foods, spam. Right? What? How can that be, James? Uh, you, you had spam from when you were a latchkey kid from third grade uh, until now. How can you be dead to it? It doesn't make sense. Well, that's and Paul in a much more serious, you know, grander way. That was a radical thing where Paul would say, I am dead to the law. For Paul, law was everything. That was his life. That was his heart. That was his boast. And he says, the law killed me. Why? That's what the law does. Law is not your friend. Apart from Christ. Uh, you think those applications on how to be a better Christian, how to be a better husband or wife, how to date well, <laughs> right? How to... Do you care for your finances? How to be a godly Christian? You think they're there to help you? No, apart from faith, apart from the gospel, that dynamic, all it does is it, ex- it exposes your sinfulness. It convicts you of how sinful you are. It condemns you of your sinfulness, and then it kills you. That's the only thing the law can do to a person who doesn't trust in Christ who is not trusting in Christ, I take that back, who is presently trusting in Christ. If you start with the gospel and you're standing on the law and you take the law as a diet for you and you're not resting on Christ, you're standing on sinking sand and the, gospel, that the law will, will, will break you down, right? will tear you apart, will ravage you. For Paul, he explained this in Romans 7. Uh, when the, he was out live, apart from the law, he was fine. Law came, do not covet. Right? All the other commands are external. Right? Do not murder, honor your mom and dad. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Right? The last command is strangely internal. Do not covet. Heart issue. Paul could control his behavior. He can't control his heart. When God said, do not covet, what happened? All these covetous desires welled up in him and he couldn't stop it. And it multiplied so much that it separated him from God. He couldn't come to God because his, he, not just external, his heart was sinful. He knew God was a heart searcher. Therefore, it separated him from God and he died. Right? The law killed him. That's what the law does. Right? When Paul was a Pharisee, he lived for the law. Now he is dead to him. It killed him. And it killed him along with someone else. He died with someone else. Through the law, I died to the law. Verse 20, Paul explains, 
more specifically, who he died with. Verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. Now, I don't think any of us are in danger of thinking of this, uh, where Paul is being presumptuous, this is blasphemy, where there's messiahs now, they want to they be Jesus to us, and they'll, they'll save us. Paul is not saying he equates himself with Jesus. No, the death of Christ for our sins is, un, is unrepeatable, it's unique, it's isolated. It's the historical event once for all, Jesus died for our sins, period. No one else can pay for our sins. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, on the cross, as Phil Reichenus said, there are three things that, three things were nailed to the cross. Jesus Christ, our sins, and every follower of Christ. Every follower of Jesus was crucified with Christ when we trusted in him. And how did this happen? Through the Holy Spirit. The spirit baptism. Right. We placed our faith in him. The spirit came and we were crucified, buried with Jesus. Romans 6.4 Therefore, we are dead to sin. We are dead to the law. Now, I think there is some misunderstanding here what it means to be dead to sin. People think dead to sin means sin has no power over us. We have no... Um, it doesn't affect us. Right? Sin is powerless to us. Right? We are dead to it. So the, you know, the analogy is you come upon a dead dog in the street and you talk to it, you pour water on it, you poke it with a stick, and if you're kind of a cruel guy, you kick it, unresponsive. Right? That's, a, that's a dead animal. It's dead to outside stimuli. Likewise, if you're a Christian, you're dead to sin, dead to temptation. So no matter what, you, you live in this high and lofty plane, victory to victory, and you're unaffected by temptations in the world. That's what Paul is saying. Well, that cannot be true for many reasons. I mean, the chief one is, that's not my experience. Is that your experience? Man, if that's your experience, you should be the preacher. <laughs> you should be the elder of Cornerstone Bible Church, not me. Because, man, I am affected by sin. sin. I don't feel dead to sin at all. Sin feels... Healthy, very healthy and alive to me. Sin feels very powerful to me. I can't escape sin, temptation, no matter what I do, right? I go to Pleasanton and it's there waiting for me, right? And I go to vacation, it's there waiting. I go home and my kids are waiting for me. Like, <laughs> it's everywhere. I can't run away from it, right? And why would Paul command believers to not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, not give members of your body uh, over to sin? Why would he co- command that if sin has no power over us? Now, that is not what Paul is saying. Right? The reality is sin, is sin sin feels powerful. We experience it. We are affected by it. But when Paul says we are dead to sin, he's saying that sin results in death. Right? That's always the, the formula. That's always the marriage. Right? You eat the fruit of this tree, you will die. Genesis, uh, right? Genesis 6, uh, Genesis 2. You will eat and you will die. In the end, the second death comes to all who have, whose sins remain. Right? Sin into the whole world, and therefore death came to, to all men because of sin. Romans 5.12. 
they always go hand in hand. The penalty of sin is death, Hebrews 9.27. And Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and Christ died to sin, and we are died to sin. That means the penalty of sin has been met. Therefore, the law can't threaten us any longer. The, the law has lost all its teeth. Right? The law can't intimidate us and cause us to fear because we are dead to it. Because, you know, once you die because of the penalty of sin, you've met its, all its obligations. There's nothing else the law could demand of you. Right? Therefore, we are dead to it. Right? We're not under the law anymore. We're not cowering. We're not afraid. We're not condemned by the law anymore whatsoever because we are in Christ and he has fulfilled it completely. So we have no fear from the law. Not only that, Paul speaks of death and God's so sovereign. Death, he has a purpose for our death. Look at verse 19b. Um, death is not the end of the story. In God's redemptive plan, death is followed by resurrection. Verse 19, Paul said, Do the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. There's that resurrection. Not only have all Christians right, been crucified, died to the law, buried with Jesus, we have been raised with Jesus by the power of the Spirit. The same power that raised Christ raised the inner man. And now we are able to live to God. Paul is saying here, this is an inescapable point, that previously he never really lived for God. Before the gospel, before Jesus, all his righteous deeds, all that zeal for the law, persecuting Christians, Pharisaic righteousness, it wasn't for the glory of God at all, it was for himself. So without the gospel, you cannot live for God. You cannot do anything for God. Let me try to explain this. First service, most didn't get it. So let me try again. Then I'm confirmed it's my fault. Especially the ladies didn't get it. Uh, okay, here's, here, here we go. Here's, there's a guy named Mike Bibby. Right? <laughs> so people that laugh understand what I'm talking about. Mike Bibby is a basketball player. Right? He's a very good basketball player. Why? Because he gets paid over $6 million to play a game, to put a ball through a hoop, right? Give me $62 and I'll do that. Or give me $6, I'll, I'll pay $6 to do that. He gets paid $6 million to play basketball for Atlanta Hawks. He got traded to the Wizards. Second worst team in the, in the league. Worst team is the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers. Well, he was guaranteed $6 million to play next year. He bought out the contract, terms undisclosed, so I don't know how much he paid, to play for the Miami Heat to contend for the championship. Right? So everybody's saying, what, he left $6 million on the table to go for a championship? What a selfless guy. What, what character. What humility. What genuine heart for the game. We need more athletes like this. Wow, he's like the savior of NBA. Like Mike Bibby, right? Paul is saying here is no. Right? He's, he's still doing it for himself. Whether you play ball for $6 million or whether you play ball for a trophy, for the accolades, for the fame, for the, for the ego and the pride, and the, right? you're still doing it for yourself. It might look like selflessness. 
if he gave that $6 million to relief in Japan, if he wasn't a Christian, apart from the gospel, he's still doing it for himself. The motivation is still self. Remember that story? He's a beggar and you give a dollar because it makes you happy. And you take that dollar, it makes you happy. Same thing. Externally, one is righteous, one is sinful. Spiritually, before God, you're still doing it for yourself. It's still selfishness. The core sin of our hearts is selfishness. We're curved into ourselves. That's the violation of the first command. You shall have no other gods above God. Well, our favorite God is ourselves. So if we give a dollar for ourselves, or we take a dollar for ourselves, before God, it's the same thing. So Paul was saying, all those righteous things I did before with the law, I wasn't doing it for God. Now that I died, now I can live for God. God used the law to kill me, and I was crucified with Jesus so that now I might live for his glory. I'm raised for his glory. I might live for him. And then he said in verse 20, verse, B, verse 20, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Here is that resurrection life. It is no longer me. But this raised life, this new life is Christ in me. That union with Christ. That I who used to live no longer lives. But it's Christ. Guys, uh, this is Luke 9.23. Luke 9.23. Any man would follow after me, he must deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. And we take that deny yourself legalistically. We trivialize. Man, we we minimize it. We make it, we we so like, we, we like taint it so much. Deny myself, okay, great, then I'm not going to have dessert this week. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to deny myself of of movies for a month. Go without TV for a week. I'm not going to log into Facebook for two days now. I'm going to sacrifice and suffer for Jesus. I'm a Christian. No YouTube videos for me. And wow, I did it. I'm such a great Christian, right? Those YouTube people, I don't watch YouTube. I deny myself. That's not what Christ is saying whatsoever. The idea is to disown yourself, to deny who you are. It's the idea of disassociating yourself with someone, so you disassociate yourself with your, from yourself. You are no longer you. Deny who you are. Right? You carry the cross. You are Christ. Christ is in you. You are, Jesus is in you. That's your new identity. It's not like this is who I am. This is my wants, my likes, my, my, my desires, my hopes, my aspirations, my preferences. This is what I like and don't like. This is what I hate. And I'm, and I'm so important. It's me, me, me. That's who I am. You become a Christian. And if you say, well, I'm going to stop this. I'm going to stop. You're still being selfish. It's saying, I no longer live. I have died. James Shin doesn't exist. It is Christ in me. And therefore, what he loves, I love. What he hates, I hate. What he is striving after, what he wants, that's the will will for me. I can't say this is what I deserve. This is what I expect. This is what I want. I disassociate myself. I, I let go of everything that I am. And Christ is in me. 
Uh, Augustine, you, you guys know Augustine? He lived a sinful, depraved life, life of sexual sin or immorality. And one day after he was saved, he was walking on the, along the marketplace, and one of his favorite mistresses was there and recognized him. He walked right past her, and she stopped him and tapped him on the shoulder, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine replied, yes, I know, but it is not I. I know who you are, but you don't know who I am. Because I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You call me by my old self, but that old self is dead. It's Christ who lives in me. And therefore, Paul says, not just for him, but all Christians, therefore live the Christian life by faith. We live by faith, not obedience to the law. We live by faith in Christ. The life I now live in the flesh, the Greek word sarks, right? The mundane, day-to-day living, I live by faith in the Son of God. So that, by use of that word, that phrase, he's saying not just spiritual things, not just ministry, but the mundane things of fighting through traffic, Mundane things of paying the bills. Mundane things of meeting people for coffee or watching movies or hanging out. Everything I do by faith in the Son of God. It's a life of faith. It's not a one-time event. Faith is not, I believed and I'm good. No, faith is continuous. Every day. We are not just justified, saved by faith, we also live by faith. It is not to be reduced to a one-time decision or an event in the past. It is a living, dynamic reality that permeates every aspect of the person's life. We live by faith, we walk by faith, we stand by faith, we overcome by faith, we are kept by faith, we are sanctified by faith. The gospel is the power of God to those who are believing, present active participle. If you are not believing in the gospel, then you are without power. All you have is a map. If you are believing in this doctrine of justification by faith, one of one fruit is which is union, union with Christ, it is dynamite to you. It is power to you. And then Paul adds this, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Right. So the law is not you've never loved you. Before Christ, I think the law was your friend. It, 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 you felt helped by it. No, the law never loved you. Only Christ loved you. The law never sacrificed itself for you. Christ, he gave himself, who pair, on behalf of your sins. Right? Not just for your sins, but on behalf. He gave himself to pay the penalty for, for our sins. This is what Christ has done. This is the answer to antinomianism. It's impossible. Christ cannot be a servant of sin. Christ, gospel of free grace, getting an A plus right now, cannot for Christians promote unrighteousness because this gospel is not a static truth. It's a living, powerful, dynamic truth that changes the inner man through faith where you are dead with Christ and you are risen with Christ. And then finally, there's no alternative. This is the, there, there's no other way. This is the only way. Verse 21, if justification were through the law, 
then Christ died for no purpose. Gospel is not a better way. It is the only way. The, the alternative way is, is, is judgment and condemnation. If, if we could be accepted by God through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, ESV. King James Version, Christ died in vain. New American Standard Version, Christ died needlessly. NIV, Christ died for nothing. The Judaizers are saying, Paul, you preach this gospel, and it thwarts, undermines God. And Paul is saying, no, you who preach the law, you are undermining God. You are sinning. You are blaspheming. You are against God. Right? You are saying Jesus died for nothing. The sinner is not the one who preaches and lives by grace. The sinner is the one who dare add to grace by adding the burden of any part of the law for the Christian. It is... Uh, it is that is the sin. That is what undermined the gospel. J. Gratian Machen said, verse 21 is the key verse of the epistle to the Galatians. It expresses the central thought of this epistle. The Judaizers attempted to supplement the saving work of Christ by merit of their own, own obedience to the law. That says Paul is impossible. Christ will do everything or nothing. Earn your salvation if your obedience to the law is perfect or else trust wholly to Christ's completed work. You cannot do both. You cannot combine merit and grace. If justification, even in the slightest measure, is through human merit, then Christ died in vain. And that's what you are saying. So the, the sin transgressor blasphemy is those who would preach law what they're doing is they're they're severing themselves and all who would believe that message they're severing you from Jesus you're cut away from grace well this closes our study in Galatians 2 just few concluding thoughts um few concluding thoughts I'll just Share, share two, two of you. Um, in light of what we studied past twice in Galatians 2, I hope you understand that the law is our friend. Right? For an unbeliever, those who are not trusting, right now you're a Christian and you're not trusting it, you're not hoping in union with Christ, gospel is not the center of your heart, then the law is frightening you. You feel insecure. You feel, um, you feel dread. You live, you live a schizophrenic life where you're, you're gloating over your accomplishments and you're despairing over your failures. Um, when I was uh, second grade, I don't know what I did, but I got my dad so mad, he told me that he's sending me away permanently. He got me in the car with my sister and he drove me to some place and I was crying the whole way. And he said, James, wait here. I'm going to go talk to this family to give you over to them. <laughs> I love him. I'm not bitter, but it's kind of harsh, you know. <laughs> but I was like second grade. I didn't know any. I was crying in the car. I turned to my sister and she's like, you did it now. 
no sympathy, no love at all, man. It was good, good to see, good to know you. I think she knew my dad was not serious, but I was like afraid. Well, he came back and he said, "No, I'm, I, I'm gonna give you one more chance." Well, so I was so afraid. I started, I started obeying my dad for like three days. <laughs> right? And then you're, you're a kid. You don't remember. And I went back into this, you know, and. And then he threatened me again, I knew, that's not true, right? <laughs> right? Well, that's how um, the law doesn't sustain obedience, and that's how some of us feel. Like, we still feel like law, oh, man, if I go to the law and I disobey, God's going to reject me and cast me away and be disappointed with me and, and, and be grieved and angry and send me away. But the gospel tells us that is not our relationship with the Father anymore. He sent his son. He loved us. And he gave himself for us. And he sent the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. 100% down payment where our A plus is guaranteed forever. And when we meet him in heaven, he'll accept us and welcome us home. That is the gospel. Therefore, being rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, being strengthened by grace, we can now study the law and love the law of the Old Testament, imperatives of the New Testament, and run the path of His commands. It becomes a joy to us. And in fact, the Bible becomes God's love letter to us. We see how God wants a relationship with us, and He wants us to know who He is, what He loves, what He hates. He wants us to know His will for us in our lives, that we will not waste our lives in sin, waste our lives in pursuing this world, and live for Him. And that dynamic is completely changed because of the gospel. Therefore, feed upon Jesus, love Jesus, study the gospel, marinate your mind with the gospel of Christ, and... Embrace the law of God. Embrace the imperatives that come from the gospel. We see this dynamic in Colossians 3, verse 1. Since you have been raised with Christ, since you have set your minds on things above, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, because of this, verse 5, therefore put to death what is earthly in you. You've been you've died with Christ. Therefore, mortify, strangle, and kill sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. These are the reasons why God's wrath is coming. Before we read that, it, it, it terrified us. And we would bargain with God. Okay, God, let me sin a little bit, but I'll serve you here. You know, I'll, I'll serve in nursery. You know, I'll babysit, you know, the leader's kids. You know, I'll go to missions. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll beat myself. I'll feel guilty. Let me toy with these sins. And you will bargain with God. But now that we have this absolute acceptance, this contra-conditional love given to us in Christ, our hearts are strengthened and we look at those commands and we love it. And say, yes, I want to, with all the power in Christ, I'm going to mortify. I want to mortify sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, all evil that's in my life. I want to put it to an end because you have loved me and you gave yourself for me. So I'd encourage you. I plead with you. 
don't pervert the grace of God. That's our heart. That's our experience. We twist the grace of God. We use it in our sinfulness as a license for sin. Don't believe in your heart. It's lying to you. Don't believe in your experience. It's lying to you. Believe the Bible. And Bible says this is God's will for you. And this will is given to you by a father who loved you and gave his son for you. And then how do you know? If your experience is real, it's right, how do you know you understand the gospel? How can you tell when you're appropriating the gospel rightly? It is not by abstaining from these sins. We ought to do that, but that's not the proof because Mormons do it. Non-believers don't commit sexual morality, right? You know, people in the world religions right, are pure and holy before, before man, right? It is not through experience because... You know, those cults, they experience spiritual things. People, you listen to, you know, secular music and experience God in various ways. How can you know, how can you and I know if we are really experiencing the gospel? Philippians 3. Paul is saying, once I sought righteousness in the law, now I consider it, skubalon, rubbish, trash. Now I am pursuing Jesus. I, I love Christ. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ the righteousness that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and by all possible means, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I may experience the power of Christ's resurrection. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me my own. How do you know if you're understanding and appropriating the gospel? It's when your life is marked by where Jesus is everything to you. I mean, Jesus is everything. I mean, literally, He is everything. He is your prize. He is your greatest treasure. He's the pearl of great price where you give everything for that pearl. He's that treasure buried in the field and you buy that whole field. It's that kingdom reality. He is so precious that you turn away from your own obedience your own righteousness from the law and all you're pursuing. You're radically pursuing. You're loving and seeking and prizing Jesus Christ and His righteousness through faith. When that is in your life, you know the gospel. You're understanding it rightly. Right? And that is so beautiful, isn't it? That is so radical. So Christian life is not about did you do your quiet time. Did you read your Bible? Right, did you see a bad movie this week? It's not reduced to that. Christian life is so much more than that. That's elementary principles. The gospel is right now, do you love Jesus? Are you experiencing Christ right now, this week? Are you walking in Him? Are you filled with the Spirit? Are you experiencing God through Christ, His Son? Are you pursuing, are you passionately pursuing Him now where He is everything and you want to know Him and be with Him? through death and resurrection. May this be the gospel fruit in our lives. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we uh, can't help but think about what we saw this past week in Japan with your power of your creation. And we can't help but think there are some who heard the warning sirens, yet they ignored it, they neglected it, they would not hear, they would not heed the call. And instead of running from the waves, they ran towards it, drove towards the waves, and perished. God, you call us with the gospel of grace. You beckon us to come. You warn us to flee from ourselves, our love of self so strong, so powerful. You call us the gospel to repent in our innermost being and turn away from our, ourselves, turn away from our self-righteousness, our self-confidence, and turn to Jesus through the gospel of grace. Lord, we pray that the Spirit would break through, humble our hearts, and open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ and how through Christ we love the law. We revel in it. We cherish it. We esteem it. And yet at the same time, as we esteem the word, we esteem the living word. We esteem the true logos, the logos of God. We esteem the eternal word that's the right hand of God's throne, Jesus Christ. So we pray, Lord, you would give us, grant to us by grace, this abiding, this abiding passion, pursuing, seeking, longing, as we long for water or food, as we long for some a delicious meal with that kind of just heart desire we would long for your son Jesus may be our all in all in Jesus name we pray amen